want to make your way back toward your seats. If you've got a if you've got a Bible with you uh, this morning, or you've got uh, an app that you use on your phone, we're going to be in Romans two, uh, verses one through sixteen this morning. Uh, but before we start, let's let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, this morning, for the chance to come together and uh, to worship God, to worship you through song, God, to worship you through looking at the truth of your word, God, to. Uh, for the opportunity to worship you in fellowship as a body. God, I pray that all that we do here this morning would be glorifying to you. God, I pray that you would warm our hearts to the truth of your word. God, that um, we would be humbled by it. God, that you would convict us uh, to live in light of it. Lord, we pray, uh, as always, that this morning uh, that we would see you clearly, that we would see the gospel clearly, God, and that as a result of our time together, we would leave here um, with an increased desire to passionately and devotedly follow you. Uh, We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, When I was young, elementary school, uh, I didn't get into a, a lot of trouble. In fact, it was, is that hard to believe? Um, it had, I was, I was pretty deep into my elementary school career, uh, the first time I saw the inside of the principal's office. And so, but I did have a particularly rough patch in third grade and I just, I kind of struggled with, with some things that year. I don't know. My bio rhythm was off for like nine months. And so, um, I can remember one day very, very specifically, we were outside at recess. Uh, we were playing a game of soccer on this uh, kind of field nearby the playground, and there was one girl there that day. Her name was Sarah, and she wasn't particularly good at soccer. And as recess went on, some people there that were playing uh, that afternoon decided that it was important to let Sarah know that she wasn't particularly good at soccer. And as that continued, I then felt like I should join in the transmission of the knowledge that Sarah wasn't very good at soccer. And by the time recess was over and, you know, kind of the dust had settled on the whole thing, one person got in trouble, me. And I can remember, you know, the teacher out there, like we're lining up to go back inside into our classrooms and one of the uh, teachers calls me over and she says, can you tell me a little bit about what was going on down there? And I did what is classic defense. I said, everyone else was doing it as if that was going to be the thing that somehow absolved me uh, of my sins there at recess. That, uh, you know, everybody was... was uh, it doesn't feel good right now, but I'm realizing that making fun is the right phrase. So everyone was making fun of Sarah. I didn't say that first service. Increasing self-reflection going on here. I looked, at, I looked at the teacher dead in the eye, and as if that were going to excuse me, I said, well, everyone was doing it. And we kind of laugh at that now, and if you're a parent, um, 
and you have kids and they use the phrase, everyone was doing it, you've got like your, you know, stock response. Well, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? And some of you might have children who look at you in that moment and say, well, you know, honestly, probably. Uh, But we kind of scoff at that line of thinking um, as adults, right? Like we've grown beyond the everyone was doing it and so I did it. And really in the moment there with my teacher, the issue wasn't so much that I wanted to throw anybody else under the bus or to make sure that somebody else got in trouble because I wasn't giving any names. I just wanted her to know, really when you get right down to it, I didn't start it. Someone else was worse than me in that they began the process of making fun of Sarah. All I did was pile on later, right? That's better than being the person that initiates it. That's the way our comparisons work. When we go to everyone else was doing it, or when we compare ourselves to somebody else, it's typically for the purpose of self-elevation. I want to make sure that in this moment, whether internally or externally, I come off as better than the person that I'm comparing myself to or the other person that I'm talking about. You could get a room full of people, some uh, Christian believers, some you know, apathetic, some openly atheistic, and you could get most everyone in society today to admit to the fact that no one's perfect, right? They might not use the word sin, you know, everyone is sinful, but you could get a room of people to at least verbally give uh, consent to the fact that no one's perfect, no one is living a life that is perfectly moral. And yet in that same room, as you had that conversation, it's human nature that in our minds, we would start the comparison between how much better or worse am I than the other people around me? Last week, we got down to the end of Romans 1. Paul gave a staggering, kind of jarring list of sins. He's going to jump right into this idea of judgment in Romans chapter 2. And he's going to start with the brokenness of the way that we judge as humanity. And he's going to show the eternally fair way that God judges. And then he's going to continue to walk forward through that. Paul's specifically addressing some individuals here in Romans 2, chapter, or verses 1 through 16. We would generally group them under the term moralizers. If a Jewish individual, particularly a person of Jewish heritage, but they're a Christian, right, that Paul's writing to, read this and got to the end of chapter 1, they definitely would have thought to themselves, look at all those sinners. They do all these things and they're awful, but I'm better than that. Even a moral Gentile Christian, someone who wasn't necessarily Jewish, but had come to put their faith in Christ, would have read that and thought, I'm better than that. In fact, we, 2,000 years later, read a passage like Romans 1, 18 to 32, and have a hard time not going to the same place in our own hearts. I'm above some of this. And so Paul is going to just call out those people in specific. Rather than seeing the full scope of our own sin and our own brokenness, 
we today and the people who read this letter, the Christians in Rome a couple thousand years ago, we almost always arrive at the conclusion that we're not as bad as we could be. And because we're not as bad as we could be, we must be okay. That's how judgment works in our own minds. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 17, he sat down and he wrote a list of 70 resolutions for his life. They're fascinating. Uh, you can find them by just, if you just go out on, on to Google and you search Jonathan Edwards resolutions, they'll pop up and a lot of sites have them all listed out. I've always been particularly captivated by number eight on the list. It says this, he was 17 years old. He sat down and he wrote, Resolved. To act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if no one had ever been as sinful as I am. And when I encounter sin in others, I will feel, at least in my own mind and heart, as if I had committed the same sins or had the same weaknesses and failings as others. I will use the knowledge of their failings to promote nothing but humility in myself. I will use awareness of their sinfulness and weakness only as an occasion to confess my own sins before the Lord. That's entirely different than the way we typically view the sin of the people around us. And at 17 years old, he made a resolution. I won't compare. I won't put myself in judgment over another person. Instead, when I see another person's sin, I'll use it as a reminder that I too am sinful. That's the correct posture to have, but we have a long ways to go to get there. Remember what Paul is doing here in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, all the way to verse 320. He's trying to walk people through the gospel, and so he begins with the fact that everyone needs to be saved. He starts with establishing universal guilt. And so from 118 all the way to 320, we have this kind of overriding statement that's guiding us, that due to the presence of humanity's sin, we do not deserve and cannot earn God's righteous eternal favor. I said last week you could say that in the positive, that due to the presence of sin, humanity does deserve God's righteous eternal judgment. And it's really important to hear it that way, especially for this week, because what Paul is going to do is move directly into the judgment side of this. Uh, I'm going to read, we're kind of going to read this in chunks this morning as we work through 2, 1 through 16. Rather than read the whole thing all at once, I think it's helpful to split this one into some pieces. And so here's where we're headed. That God's righteous eternal judgment is fair, final, and for everyone. It's fair, it's final, and it's for everyone. We're just going to walk our way through those three uh, attributes of judgment, our, our adjectives there. The first one is that God's righteous eternal judgment is fair. Let me read verses 2, 1 through 5. It says this, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. It's the first five verses of our section. As we start to kind of work our way through this, let me give just an additional tip as you're reading Romans or you're reading any of the New Testament epistles. 
Typically, the way the author operates, and this is exactly what Paul is doing here, is that they make some assertions, and then they try to answer the logical thoughts or questions that come with those assertions. When you see the words for or therefore, typically they're answering a question, a logical question that comes from something up above. Let me give you an example. In Romans 1.15, Paul said, uh, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16 says, for. Paul's answering a question. What's the logical question from verse 15? Why would you be eager to preach the gospel to me? Why? Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What does that mean? For, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's, he's trying to answer the question that the reader would logically ask themselves. When you see a therefore, it's typically about a larger section of scripture. So Romans 2.1 starts with therefore. When you see the word for, or you see the word therefore, stop and ask yourself the question, what is the author trying to answer? What sort of inherent question or inherent thought is trying to be addressed right now? And so when you get all the way down to the bottom of 32, chapter 1, verse 32, and you have the thought to yourself, or the original reader would have had the thought to themselves, whew, at least I'm not that bad. Paul says, hold on. Therefore, in light of all of that, when you judge someone else, you condemn yourself. Don't judge. That's not what this is about, Paul says. So he begins with saying that God's righteous eternal judgment will be fair. Our judgment is skewed. God's is based on truth. Look at verse 2. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth, eternal truth. In that way, there will be perfect fairness to his judgment. That stands in stark contrast to how we judge when we look at other people. Paul wants us to understand the brokenness of our own judging in comparison to the righteous, perfect fairness of God who is holy and therefore can judge. We're horribly unself-aware. That's what sin does to us. And so when we judge someone else, we're doing so without a complete understanding of the nature and extent of our own sin. We have this blindness to our own faults. But in the midst of being blind to our own faults, we're extremely critical of the people around us. We extend unlimited grace to ourselves, or at least we want to, and in our sin, almost none to the people around us. That's how our brokenness tends to function. And the real issue is that when we judge... We're trying to set ourselves above another person. What we end up doing is condemning ourselves, Paul says, because we're every bit as sinful and we're either completely blind to it or we're willfully choosing to ignore it. If you're a note taker, jot down, just put David and Bathsheba in your notes. A great example of how blind we are in our judgment of other people. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He then has Uriah, her husband, murdered. And after some time, a man named Nathan shows up. And Nathan gives David this parable, if you will. He said there once was a really rich man who had a bunch of sheep. And there was a poor man who had one sheep. And one day a traveler came along to the rich man's house. And the rich man decided, I want to make dinner for this guy. But he couldn't bear to part with one of his own sheep. So he took the Uh, The one sheep from the poor man killed it and prepared a feast. 
And the first thing that comes out of David's mouth is, that man doesn't deserve to live. And Nathan says, you are that man. When you get to Romans 2.1 and you have a thought inside your mind that at least I'm not that, Paul says, you are that man. And you can try to judge in such a way as to think that someone else's sin is disgusting and broken and awful, but you better not overlook the fact that your sin is disgusting and broken and awful. You are that man. God, on the other hand, is judging based on an unwavering standard of eternal truth. He is holy. He's above our sinfulness. He's in a position to actually judge. He sees all things. Verse 15 is going to tell us that. There is no secret that remains hidden from him. And his comparison point is not one of wanting to elevate himself. His comparison standard is holy, eternal truth. And because of this, his judgment will be fair. It will take all things into account. And then he will hold those things next to a standard. And verse 5 tells us that what we've been doing in preparation for that moment of judgment is storing up wrath for ourselves. There's a money metaphor or analogy that's kind of playing itself out all through this text. That storing up wrath Uh, the literal there is treasuring wrath for yourselves. It's as if you've got a bank account, and every time you sin, you drop a little bit of money into that bank account. And when you stand in judgment, God's going to repay. That's what verse 6 tells us. He's going to make good on the bank account. Maybe this is actually a better way to think about it. You've got a bank account, and every time you sin, you're withdrawing. The problem is your bank account started at zero, And every time you withdrew, you went further and further into the hole. And God, at some point, when you stand in judgment, is going to call that account to balance. And it's not going to work out in your favor. It will be fair. So you get to the end of verse 5, and you can't help but kind of think to yourself, how's that whole judgment thing going to work? How does this happen? So Paul goes on. God, in his word, tells us, verses 6 down through 11, he will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. There's like a parallel way that Paul walks through those uh, six verses. It's as if he's swimming at the top of a pool. He swims down to the bottom, touches the bottom, and then kicks his way back to the top. He reiterates that this will be fair. Verse 6, everyone will be judged according to his works. Then he makes a statement about what happens if you do that well. Verse 7. Then in verse 8, he says, what happens if you don't do that well? Then in verse 9, he goes back, what if you don't do it well? Verse 10, here's what happens if you do it well. Verse 11, it will be fair. It's like he started at the top, worked his way to the bottom, and now he's going to undo what he's already said. All to make the, the point that this thing is going to be final. When you get judged in that moment, there will be 
it will be fair. There will be no favoritism, and it will be final. And what are the two options? How does the judgment work? Well, Paul says, based on what you've done, held next to the standard of God's eternal truth, there are only two options. You will either be innocent or you will be guilty. And if you're innocent, you'll get eternal life. But in order to be innocent, you will have to have persisted in doing good all the time. And that's how you get eternal life. The other option is that you're guilty. And there will be wrath and anger, he says, affliction and distress. And how do you end up guilty? Well, you were self-seeking. You didn't obey righteousness. Instead, you obeyed unrighteousness. Both of those decisions will be final. No second chance. There are kind of uh, three or four different ways that people choose to read verses 6 through 11. I'm going to give you the one that I... Uh, think is most accurate based on where Paul is in the book of Romans, but also compared to other parts of the New Testament and other parts of Scripture. But I'm going to hold it loosely and understand that you could read it a different way, and that's totally fine. We're going to arrive at a similar conclusion. What Paul essentially does here in verse 6 through 11 is give a hypothetical scenario that's happening in the middle of a real-life moment. He tells us in verse 5 that God will reveal his righteous judgment. That is coming. And so the hypothetical question is, what happens in the moment of judgment? And Paul says, well, here's what happens. You either get eternal life because you've persisted in doing good, or you get wrath and anger because you've been unrighteous. You either get affliction and distress because you've done evil, or you get eternal life because you've done what is good. Those are the only two options. And so you would get to the end of verse 11, and you would say, okay, There's a fair judgment based on truth. There's a final judgment that's going to last for eternity. And thank goodness, because I'm moral, there's a chance I get eternal life. After you've read through verse 11, if you're a moral individual, that's what you would think to yourself. It's fair, it's final, and I've got a chance. So Paul goes on to say, you actually don't have any hope. In verses 12 through 15, Paul's going to reveal that that righteous eternal judgment, and I mean judgment in the negative sense of the word there, will be for everyone. Here's what he says. All who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts will either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. That's all the way through 16. God's righteous eternal judgment will be for everyone. Paul says it does not matter if you are Jew or Greek, if you are Gentile, it doesn't matter if you have the law memorized, if you stand there in that moment, you will be guilty. You will be condemned. And he plays it out for both Jewish individuals and Gentile individuals. Verse verse 13 is about Jews. It's not hearing the law that's going to make you innocent. It's if you did the law. Let me put that into language for us today. You go to church. It's not being able to quote a few Bible verses that's going to make you innocent when you stand judgment. 
It's if you upheld all of them your entire life. Obvious answer. Can't do it. Didn't do it. I would be guilty. So then Paul addresses the Gentiles, who easily could make the uh, rebuttal, well, we didn't have the law, so we must be okay. And Paul says, you got a conscience. And if you only ever did what your conscience said was right, then maybe you'd have a chance, right? It's like the sitcom moment where a person's wrestling with two options here, and the sitcom goes ahead and puts it on the screen for you, little angel on this shoulder, little devil on this one, and they're both yapping back and forth about what the person should do. Paul says, if you only ever did what the angel said, maybe you'd have a chance. But if even one time you did what the devil said, you're in trouble. You're guilty. No hope. No one could stand in that moment, whether you had the law or whether you only had your conscience. Let me illustrate it for you another way. For a Jewish individual who uh, stood in judgment, Paul is essentially saying, if in that moment before the Lord, he held up a written account of the law, he held up the Old Testament, and he held next to that a written account of your entire life, and just looked at them next to each other, you would be guilty. And he wouldn't even need to say anything. You could read them both and see your guilt. For a Gentile, he says, all we'd have to do is hit play on a recording of your life and allow the audio commentary to be what your conscience said at every moment. And you could watch that tape and listen to that commentary and you wouldn't even need me to tell you that you're guilty. You would understand it. Jew, Gentile, law, no law, don't judge first of all, because you're every bit as guilty held next to God's righteous standard. And it doesn't matter who you are, you would get judgment. God's judgment will be fair, it will be final, and it will be for everyone. And that's depressing. It's pretty awful. One of the hard things about walking through Romans over a long period of time is that there's a payoff coming, but I need you to keep coming back for like four more weeks until we get there. But along the way, Paul gives us little foreshadowings of what the payoff is. Let me recap the entire strain of thought here in terms of what a reader would think and how the text responds. You get to the end of chapter 1 and you think to yourself, whew, I am moral. At least I'm not that. And Paul says, don't you even start to judge because when you judge, you condemn yourself because you're not actually any better. Based on God's righteous eternal standard of truth, you are just as guilty. You've had a lifetime to repent of that, but you have just trampled on the kindness of the Lord, not realizing that he was giving you opportunities to repent. And so when you stand in judgment, there will either be eternal life because you persisted in doing good, or there will be wrath and anger because you did one thing evil. And you might think to yourself there, whew, so you're saying there's a chance. To which Paul says, not a chance. Because it doesn't matter if you were Jewish and you had the law, you know you didn't live up to it. Or you were a Gentile and you just had your conscience. You know you didn't live up to it. Everybody is guilty. And then Paul throws this little nugget in on the end of 16. 
that you will be judged on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. The judging that happens at the end of all things will happen according to the gospel and it will be through Jesus. In the end, the judge is going to be Christ and the gospel is going to be the standard. Eternal life and peace or wrath and distress will be judged by Christ. The Father has given that role to the Son. And the fact that the judging takes place according to the gospel means that being justified or declared innocent in that moment will be entirely based on whether you are covered by the righteousness of the Son or not. On your own, no one, Jew or Gentile, could stand and be innocent. It isn't possible. But Paul says there is another way. And he's already laid it out in Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation. It's the power of innocence for all who believe. Belief in the Son. That's the other way. At God's righteous eternal judgment, Jesus is the judge and the justifier. The glory and beauty of the gospel is that we are all guilty, and yet the Son has willingly bore upon himself the penalty of our guilt. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then in the moment of judgment, his perfect persistence in doing good will be yours. And eternal life will be your reward. You can't persist in doing good, but he has. And by faith in him, his innocence becomes yours. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then as Paul is describing, you will stand condemned. The sinfulness and the stain of your sin will be punished. You've been withdrawing from the bank account. And on the cross, Jesus Christ bore all the wrath for how far in debt you are. And if you've placed your faith in him, then he has balanced out the account. He has justified you before the Lord. But if you haven't placed your faith in him, eternity is going to pay you back. And there will be wrath and anger, affliction and distress. With Christ, that punishment has been paid in full on the cross. That's the good news. That's the beautiful power of the gospel. Without Christ that punishment will be paid back over the course of eternity. Throughout the last couple weeks, I've given some homework assignments, and I want to combine them and reissue them today. What it means to be gospel-centered is that we live in a state of gratitude for the truth of the gospel. We hold in our minds at all times the reality of our sin and the beauty of the gospel. They are constantly before us, and we live in wonder of it. This is the way Charles Simon says it. There are but two objects that I have ever desired to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together. Last week, the assignment was to see our sin, and the goal wasn't to make us hate ourselves or to loathe ourselves. It was to help us grow in wonder. Two weeks ago, the assignment was to begin to learn how to behold the beauty of the gospel. I want to combine those this week. See your sin. Not so that you hate yourself. 
so that you understand just what Jesus has done for you in the gospel, just what's happened for you on the cross. And then the third piece of that is to live in wonder, in awe of what Christ has done. To be gospel-centered as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is to live life in a state of awe. That despite your absolute guilt, you could stand before the Lord, you could stand before the judge in the moment of judgment and be declared innocent. That should dumbfound us daily as believers. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to close our time singing a couple of songs. One of them is Before the Throne. Uh, The other is All I Have is Christ. And as we kind of move into this time of worship, I want to close with one last illustration. I spent a few days last week um, in Disney World with my family. And I went to, to Disney World a lot as a child, but the difference in going as an adult is that you get to see the way children interact with Disney World. And you're kind of aware of it. And so uh, we were at the Magic Kingdom one day and we're back in Fantasyland, you know, where they've got all the rides of like movies and you kind of ride in your little car through the movie. And we're on one of these rides in particular. It was the Little Mermaid ride. Don't judge me. (laughs) Don't even put yourself above me. So we're on this Little Mermaid ride, and there's a point early on in the ride where all the little cars kind of turn sideways, and there's an animatronic figure of Ariel. And there's a little girl in the car next to us, maybe like six or seven years old. And you better believe she was convinced that was actually Ariel. She's waving at it. She's trying to strike up a conversation with Ariel as the car goes by. And for the rest of the ride, as we went through, you know, like the scenes of the movie or whatever, she's just totally dumbfounded by everything that's happening around her. You watch fireworks at Disney World near a seven-year-old, and they are just totally in awe of what's happening. There's this wonder and amazement at what is going on, what it means to be a gospel-centered Christian individual is that we have that kind of awe about the gospel at all times. That even though we deserve righteous, eternal judgment, thanks to faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, we've been justified. That just like anyone else, we've withdrawn from the bank account over the course of our lives and we deserve eternal wrath and anger, affliction and distress, but by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to be given eternal life because he persisted in doing good and then bore the penalty for our negative bank account. That kind of awe is how we should live as followers of Jesus Christ. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Let's sing together. We want to make sure that we're always clear uh, on a couple of things. And the first is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have nothing to fear at the moment of judgment. There will be no condemnation for you in that moment because his perfect persistence in doing good and obeying the law and upholding the law for the entirety of his life is going to be granted to you. And you will be innocent in that moment. And that should leave us wonderstruck at all times. 
The other side of that is that if you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then as Paul is laying out, you will stand in that moment guilty, condemned. And the punishment that Christ bore on the cross will become the punishment that you bear for all of eternity. And as heavy and difficult and harsh as that might sound, the good news of the gospel is that held out for you at all times by grace is the opportunity to be forgiven and declared innocent by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you've not done that, uh, we want to make sure that you know that our staff uh, is always available to talk about that, that there are people here within this congregation that you likely know who would love to explain to you what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ and what it looks like to walk in relationship with him and to be forgiven by the grace of God. Um, If that's you, I encourage you, uh, you don't have to do it today necessarily, but reach out to someone on our staff, reach out to someone in here and begin or continue that conversation. Um, On Sunday mornings, there's always people available to pray uh, with you or for you after our services. The location of that is changing. Now that we have a little bit more space, it's going to be in this back uh, corner to my left, your right. Um, there's some more space back there. There's a little hallway. You, there will always be people available there to pray after services. And then if you're new or you're visiting with us, uh, we encourage you to go straight through these back doors and find one of our pastors at the Welcome Center, not the Information Desk, the Welcome Center, which is right through those doors on the left. We'd love to meet you and have a chance to get to know you uh, a little bit this morning. Have a great week. We will see you next Sunday.